So I go and right as I'm about to send her off through the security gate, mm -hmm. I get this prompting. I, I literally hear the spirit speak to me and say, this is the last time. And I know in that moment that this is the last time that I'm going to talk to my mom free of the drugs, that I'm going to talk to the real, the real Debbie. And so I look at her and I put her face between my hands and I tell her, mom, I love you. Welcome to Stories of Hope in Hard Times, the show that explores how people endure and even thrive in difficult times, all with God's help. I'm your host, Tamara K. Anderson. Join me on a journey to find inspiring stories of hope and wisdom learned in life's hardest moments. My interview today is with a guest who grew up in Utah and California, but her home life was one which was ruled by an alcoholic father and a mother who was addicted to opioids, so that was very challenging. She says her conversion to Jesus Christ is what has gotten her through. She had a few years after high school where she was able to volunteer with the AmeriCorps the NCCC, the National Civilian Community Corps, where she worked with Youth at Risk, building houses for Habitat for Humanity, and even serving with the Red Cross in New York after 9-11. This was some time for her that she needed to find herself, she says. She has been married for 15 years now to a rocket scientist, and they have lived in Seattle, as well as in Charleston, South Carolina, and is an active board member for A Reason to Stand. I am pleased to introduce Andrea Jean Sorensen. Andrea, are you ready to share your story of hope? You bet. <laughs> awesome. Let's kind of back up a little okay. bit and talk about the alcohol addiction and the opioid addiction right. and how what it was like growing up in a home that was ruled by that. Yeah. So first and foremost, I want to say that my parents loved me. Mm -hmm. They loved me and my siblings deeply. And I really believe that they were just doing the best that they could. And, you know, addiction comes from a place of, uh, uh it comes from a place of pain. I know my father was dealing with, with some depression and just various challenges and in an effort to get through them uh, he chose substance abuse alcohol to numb the pain right and that's mm -hmm. that's really where most addicts are coming from is just trying to numb that pain so first and foremost i want to say that my parents loved me and i felt that and that love has been such a strength to me over the years, despite anything that we had been through. But when I was younger, it was definitely my father's alcoholism that that was the challenge for us. It was um, it was just a very unpredictable environment. Mm. It was one moment you didn't know if he was going to be happy and engaged with you, or the next moment be raging uh, because the alcohol would just take him over 
Mm-hmm. Um, in that effort to numb his pain, it also numbed everything else, but it would also enhance the anger and the frustration with everything that he was dealing with. And it was like walking on eggshells all the time. You, you were just, you were careful and you didn't really feel like you could be you all the time because you didn't know what was going to set him off. And at this time, my mother was the rock of our family. Mm -hmm. She was just a light and so much fun and joyful. She was that type of person that if she walked into a room of people, she was going to hug every person in the room, (laughs) every person in the room. And you were going to love her right away. And you knew that she loved you right? because she was just that light and had that joyful presence. And so here she was with my father. Um, who had those moments where he would shine too, but he just was really struggling with the addiction and it made it difficult. It made it really difficult. It, (laughs) there was just contention in the home all the time. Wow. And you, you lived in fear. I remember as a child thinking, it's probably in my, my preteen years, you know, when you when you envision the biggest thing that's going to happen in your life is your high school graduation. Mm -hmm. Right. And I remember thinking, I hope he, he lives long enough to see me graduate just because he would drink so much. And I was so scared about what it was doing to his body. And I just remember always being living in fear, fear of his mood, fear of what might happen to him, Mm -hmm. fear that I wasn't good enough. Right. Just, all of that comes with being, being in a home where someone is addicted. Right. So, so it was in your high school years mm-hmm. that your mother became addicted to opioids, yes. right? Yes. Yes. Why don't you talk us through how that happened? Right. Because she changed, right? Yeah. Yeah, she did. And it was so unexpected and it was so drastic. Uh, when it finally really took hold of her. So when I was 13, my mother, after years and years of trying to get my father to quit drinking, uh, try to save him, essentially, she finally couldn't do it anymore. She had given everything that she could, and it was just so dysfunctional, and there was so much tension in the home that she was hopeful that if they got divorced, maybe that would make it easier on my sister and I. Maybe the, the fighting wouldn't be... Um, it's prevalent anymore. And I just know that that was, that was kind of her hope, Mm -hmm. um, in in choosing that course of action. And so they got divorced when I was 13 and then they ended up with joint custody. And so every two weeks we would live two weeks with my dad and two weeks with my mom, which was a challenge in and of itself, right? You're a teenager and you're constantly just feeling uprooted. Luckily, they lived near each other. So mm-hmm. we uh, didn't have to travel too far for school and that made it a little bit easier later on, but that was a challenge in and of itself. So my parents get divorced and my mother is trying to make it on her own as a single mom. Mm-hmm. And then she met my stepfather and, uh, he was, he was really a bright spot in all of our lives. And she was working as a house cleaner for a friend who owned the business and she slipped and broke her knee Oh, while she was cleaning a home up in Park City, Mm -hmm. middle of winter. So she goes in for this knee surgery and at the end of the knee surgery, she is prescribed opioids. Uh, 
and she gets addicted after that. In talking with her years later, uh, she, she had one moment of sobriety down the road. We can get to that later. But yeah. I remember saying, so mom, when did it, when did this start? And she said, well, it was after the knee surgery. She said, I took the medication as it was prescribed, mm-hmm. but they gave me more than what I needed. And at the end of, you know, the two or three weeks when I was no longer in pain, I was in the habit of taking it at a certain time of day. She said, and I remember one day taking it when I wasn't in pain at that time and thinking, oh, I have a lot of energy. And she just used it to keep going at that point. So at first it was kind of habitual and then it led to, I, I can't function without this anymore. Mm. And so from the time I was 14 until the time I was probably my junior or senior year of high school, so maybe 17, 18 years old, um, she kept it a secret. It was a completely hidden addiction and we didn't know. We started to notice again, those later years of high school that she was a little more agitated, that she couldn't sleep or that she was sleeping too much. Hmm. Um, I thought maybe she was depressed. I thought maybe her and my stepfather were just having some marital problems that she couldn't quite deal with, but there was a lot of tension that was starting to develop in our home and, I didn't quite know what it was. And, Mm -hmm. you know, when I was in high school, uh, how many years ago has it been? (laughs) Nearly 20 years. You don't have to calculate that. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Opioid addiction just wasn't something we were aware of. Yeah. No, it wasn't. It wasn't talked about. You know, an addict was the homeless junkie on the street. I mean, that was, that was what I had in my mind of what a drug addict was. Not, not my mom, not my stay at home mom Mm -hmm. that never even crossed my mind. So I couldn't put my finger on it. But I remember in high school, I was sick and I went to, my mom took me to the pediatrician Mm -hmm. my senior year and she was, um, I don't know, addicts become really good manipulators. And so in the course of the appointment, she had convinced my doctor that ibuprofen wasn't cutting it for my symptoms and that I needed something stronger. And so he prescribed me Loratab. Really? Yes. Crazy, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) I don't even know how she got from point A to point B. But I remember leaving and thinking, what's Loratab? Like, Mm -hmm. I never saw the prescription. My mom filled it and said to me, I just decided you never needed it. You started getting better. Well, little did I know that that was one of the ways she was starting to get medicine. And after things came out talking with my sisters, she did that with my younger sisters and just, you know, finding ways to get started. So the, the idea was maybe planted at that time that maybe something was going on when I left home and I went to AmeriCorps. I remember my stepfather calling me with kind of a similar situation. Um, And then my pediatrician reached out to me because she had uh, reached out to him saying that I had been injured, but that I couldn't get to the doctor. And if he could just prescribe me something, Mm. you know, so just little things like that were starting to pop up. And so then it was, okay, so mom's taking pain pills that aren't hers. What does that mean? Right. What does that look like? Does that mean that she's an addict? Mm -hmm. Uh, Does that mean... Um, that she's in pain and just really needs more help. I Mm -hmm. just didn't know what that looked like, what that looked like. But at this point, things were starting to just, things were starting to fall apart. Mm. So 
Um, I think we were in denial a little bit too. Sure. We didn't, we didn't know what we were up against. We thought that she would figure it out. Yeah. But unfortunately it just continued to get worse. You, you don't just figure it out when you're addicted to prescription drugs or any substance for that matter. Mm -hmm. Um, it takes a lot of intention and a lot of action and a desire to get better yeah, to come out sure. of that. So, wow, that is crazy. So your mom had started taking painkillers. Mm -hmm. When did it become obvious to you that she truly was addicted? So I come home from AmeriCorps and I am on fire, right? Yes. Like I have just spent a year serving all across the country, having the most amazing experiences of my life. Mm -hmm. And I am feeling confident, like... Mm -hmm. I'm going to change the world, right? Yes, of <laughs> like, Nothing's going to stop. Right. Now. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I'm 19 years old. I come back and I know that my mom's struggling, but I don't realize, I don't realize that she's really an addict, like a legitimate textbook addict at this point. Mm -hmm. We're in denial still. Our family's just kind of tiptoeing around the issue, trying to keep her happy. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of how we're living. So I meet my husband mm -hmm. about three weeks after getting home from AmeriCorps. Oh, wow. I, I see know. him in church. I, it was this, I have this prompting that he's the man I'm going to marry the moment I see him. Really? Yeah. It was, that's crazy. It was crazy. And I was totally not expecting it. No, I, I bet was, you weren't. I was taken aback. So I meet my husband and we date for about a year and then we get married. And at this point I am thinking I'm home free, right? Yeah. Like I am going to have this forever family that I've worked so hard for. I'm free of the dysfunction. I'm free of the addiction. I'm going to make my family life whatever I want it to be. Right? right. Right. And things are going great. I'm feeling like I've made it to the top of Mount Everest. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden I'm like on the bunny hill again. Really? <laughs> like, That's so life. I, I know. Right. Isn't that how it is? Isn't that how it is? So this happens because I get this phone call mm -hmm. and uh, my husband and I've been married for seven months at the time. And it, it's my dad's next door neighbor. Okay. And he sounds really panicked and I can hear someone screaming in the background. And then a firefighter takes the phone from my neighbor and he's on the phone and he's speaking to me. And so I find out that my dad has had a house fire Oh my word. in his kitchen. So it was a grease fire. He right. was cooking French fries, uh, it caught on fire and he tossed it in the sink in a panic, oh. not realizing that there was water in the sink and it just ignites everything. So my dad stopped the fire by reaching up and grabbing the curtains that were on fire above the sink with his bare hands, throws them on the ground, stamps them out. And only, only the kitchens burned at this point. And he, um, suffers third degree burns on the oh. palms of his hands. Bless it, it was an awful, awful experience. So he, uh, so he's screaming in the background and the firefighters trying to explain to me what's happened and that we need to come down and they're going to take him to the hospital. And yeah. so this is a low point for my father. Obviously this sure. is like, this is a rock bottom wake up call moment for him. Right. And so my husband and I come and I remember the weeks afterwards. I don't know if you've ever dealt with a burn victim before. Not like that. No. But the pain, 
you always hear about how painful it is. I have never in my life felt so, um, so gutted by watching somebody else be in so much pain. I remember my husband and I would have to scrub his wounds for him and clean them. And I just remember him wailing, wailing in pain. And it was awful to watch your dad go through something like that. Um, but I, I knew, right. That we had to clean them properly. And it's that way with life, right? When we go through these really difficult times, we have to take the proper steps to clean the wound, to scrub the wound, to do everything that we can, because it's the only way that we can properly heal. So we go through this process with my dad and he, he calms down after that. Is he still an alcoholic to this day? Yeah, he is. But he's not a raging alcoholic anymore. And he has this moment where I think he just, I think times like that just make you realize what really matters most. They Mm -hmm. cause you to evaluate the way you're living, what you're doing, where your focus is. And I think he was able to let go of a lot of anger after that, that, that event was really challenging, but ended up being a blessing for him. But this was also the moment where my parents really switched places. So my mom had this opioid addiction, which at this point we're not addressing as an opioid addiction because right. we don't really understand what's going on. Uh-huh. I know something is up, but the tables are turned. So my dad is probably, it's been three weeks since the accident mm-hmm. and I get a phone call from him and he says, now I'm going to tell you something about your mom, but don't interrupt me. Cause we have this like, no, no policy in my parents talking about each other. Right. Uh-huh. <laughs> the divorce was really rough. Mm-hmm. He says, don't cut me off. This is important. And so, okay, well, what is it dad? And he said, your mom came over to bring me a casserole, which was really nice of her but she stole all of my morphine pills. Oh, wow. And so in this moment, I sink. I just think, oh my gosh, my mom really is an addict. And it's like all the denial from the last few years just kind of disappears. And I finally accept that she's really become an addict at this point. And so I reach out to my stepfather and my siblings and we decide to have an intervention with her. Right. Because what else do you do? I don't know. I mean, right? that's, <laughs> I didn't know how to deal with this. Right. And so we go over and we speak to her. And of course she denies everything at first. Yeah. And then after a time just breaks down and admits that she has a problem. And so I take her to uh, the detox center up at his hospital in Salt Lake because mm-hmm. I don't know where else to take her. Right. right. I can't afford like a celebrity rehabilitation yeah. center. Yeah. And I'm new at this. I've yeah. never done this before. And so I was alone. Right. And I remember taking her up to the center and they're che- them checking her in. And I remember vividly them opening those double bifold doors Mm -hmm. and her just walking away from me and the doors closed behind her and I lost it. Mm. I ran into the bathroom and I think I probably cried my heart (laughs) out for an hour alone Uh because I just felt so lost. And I was still in so much shock that Mm. this had happened to my mom. Yeah. My life of the party loved everyone light up the room mom. Mm -hmm. And I didn't know how to deal with this reality that I was facing. 
And so years go by with the same pattern repeating itself, her going into a detox center and coming home saying she'll be better and all of us just scrambling to save our mom. Every single one of my siblings just tried desperately, but it got to this point where she was just so high all the time that you couldn't even connect with her anymore. It, it was like talking to a wall. It was, it, it was talking to somebody who wasn't there anymore mentally. And then her body started to show the signs of addiction as well. And why don't you talk me through what some of those are just so people right. can recognize them? Well, I mean, she would go from excessive weight gain mm -hmm. to being super, super thin, like bones sticking out thin. And, um, I remember to try to get more pills. She would, she would fake illness and injury. And so she went through unnecessary surgeries. Uh, she ended up having all of her teeth pulled oh, and because she would slowly go into the dentist complaining of tooth pain and they would investigate it and say that there wasn't anything wrong, but the complaints would continue and she would push for medications and mm. to the point where she, I mean, she lost all of her teeth. Her, her coloring was changing. Her eyes were getting sunken and looking bloodshot. Her, her skin looked frail. She just went she looked 30 years older wow. than, than she was. Mm -hmm. Um, and she was very weak and tired all the time. The energy was gone. The spark was gone. Um, it was just very obvious that, that she was an addict and just couldn't, couldn't get through it. Wow. How hard that must've been. So is this where you were able to draw on Jesus Christ to oh, help you through? A hundred percent, a hundred percent. Right. So when I was younger, when I was in high school, I was 16 years old when I was baptized a member of the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Mm -hmm. And for years I had been searching. I was always a religiously conscious kid. I remember asking my parents to go to church all the time, even when I was a young child, when we lived in California. Um, and I remember being very proud when we were Methodist and I would wear the robes and walk through <laughs> and light the candles. And I just really wanted to be a part of that. And I think because the dysfunction was so great in my home, I think it just really made me seek, seek for God and understand that relationship with him. And so after years of attending different Christian churches, mm -hmm. I found my place with the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and mm -hmm. I found peace and comfort there. But I was really immature in my uh, experiences with the Savior, right? Mm -hmm. It took me sure. years. It takes years it to does. learn to develop that relationship and, and learn how to listen to those promptings and uh, to just have that connection and know that you'll be strengthened and, and lifted up regardless of whatever is going on in your life. But it takes time to develop that kind of faith. It but does. the hope was there. The hope was there for years. So that journey in seeking Christ started when I was 16. And as the addiction progressed with my mother, mm -hmm. as I was a wife and I was a mother myself and I was trying to balance being there for my husband and being there for my children and trying to save my mom, uh, I really had to learn to dig deep and rely on the Savior. Um, I think the biggest moment that I had 
would probably have been, so my mom had gotten to this point where she lost everything because of the opioid addiction. She lost, uh, her husband at the time. Um, she, she left home. She became homeless. She was living out of her car. Wow. She just lost everything. And so at this point, my mother hits this low and she, uh, attempts suicide. Oh, wow. My older brother finds her, rushes her to the hospital. They save her. And after two weeks in the hospital, they release her and put her on a plane and send her to me up in Seattle. Now, this was my choice. Right. Because at this point, I'm like, I am done. I want my mom back. Mm -hmm. I know she's in there somewhere. Mm -hmm. If I can just get through to her, Mm -hmm. then she'll be okay. Right. If I can just rehabilitate her. Mm -hmm. And so my husband and I decide our house is going to be her detox center. So we get her up to Seattle and she's staying with us. At this point, I have four kids. Wow. And I am trying to rehabilitate and detox my mother, (laughs) right? While dealing with my kiddos and my husband and everything else that comes along with being a stay-at-home mom. And it's really, really hard. So after two weeks, we have her completely sober. And that's because she had no car. She had no phone. Mm -hmm. She didn't know anybody out there. We literally like had her on lockdown in the house. (laughs) (laughs) We had her on lockdown Uh and, um, I was so brutal. I remember she was a smoker too. And I just, I didn't even buy her cigarettes. I gave her nicotine (laughs) patches and wished her luck. Right. I thought tough love, tough love is going to fix this. Uh And so at the end of that two weeks Mm -hmm. of going through Charles and the headaches and she was, she was ornery (laughs) to to put it mildly. Mm -hmm. It was a difficult experience. I had my mom back. Mm. I had my mom back. I had her mind free of the substances and it had been years at this point, Mm -hmm. years since she had been free. And I was so excited, Mm -hmm. but you know what was missing though? What? The light was missing. It it wasn't back yet. Mm -hmm. She was she didn't have any substances in her system. She was free of the drugs, free of the alcohol, but her light still wasn't there. Mm-hmm. And that wasn't something that I could put back in her myself. Mm-hmm. I couldn't do it myself. Mm-hmm. And this was painful for me. So she stays a couple of months with us mm-hmm. in this state. And she at this moment is, thank you so much. Because I was convinced that if I got the drugs out of her system, that my mom would finally choose me instead of the drugs. And that was one of the most painful things too, when you're dealing with an addict that's just so far gone is you, you just think, why, why are the drugs more important to you than me? Mm -hmm. And why can't you realize that you're worth it? You're worth more than all of these substances. You have the ability, mom, like you can do this. Mm -hmm. And that was really, really, really exhausting. Oh my word. I can't even imagine. It was exhausting. You just want to, I just want to grab her by the shoulders and shake her and just say, mom, you're enough. Mm. You're enough the way you are Mm -hmm. and it's okay. You don't have to be perfect to come to the Lord. Mm -hmm. It's okay to come to him broken, right? That's what he's there for. We all come broken. (laughs) You don't need to be perfect first. We're going to take a quick break, but when we get back, Andrea, why don't you tell us the end of this story and what happens to your mother? 
and what decision she makes about staying with you or going home. How many of you out there feel like your life is chaotic, crazy, and completely awful compared to the norm? What if I were to tell you that you are normal for you? I am so excited to announce that my book, Normal For Me by Tamara K. Anderson is now available for purchase on Amazon. This book took me 10 years to write and I share 20 years worth of lessons learned in my life detours, including being in a car accident and having two of my children diagnosed on the autism spectrum. In this book, I share the secrets of how I made it from despair to peace with God's help. I also include a bonus diagnosis survival guide at the very end of my Normal For Me book. The diagnosis survival guide includes 12 tips to survive and thrive in tough times. Wouldn't you like to know what those are? So what are you waiting for? Grab your copy of Normal For Me today on Amazon. And we're back. Today I'm talking to Andrea Jean Sorensen about what it was like to have a mother who was addicted to opioids. And we're at the point in the story where Andrea has just rehabbed her mother in her own home for several months and she is finally clean from the drugs for the first time in years and years and years. So let's hear the end of that story, Andrea. So she's with us for about three months and at the end of this time my husband and I are hopeful. Like she's been sober all of this time. Mm Maybe we can actually get her back. We can get that light back in her. Mm-hmm. And so we say, why don't you come live with us? Why don't you stay here for another year? Mm-hmm. And we'll help you get a job. We'll get you on your feet. But you need to be away from the environment that you were in before where you could access the drugs and you had your contacts and right, right. and all of that. It's got to be longer than this, mom. Mm-hmm. And she says, no. She says, no. She says, I need to get back to my life now. I don't know if I'd mentioned, but I had, um, I have a sister who's 15 years younger than me at this time. So my mother had her when I was 15. Okay. Okay. And so she said, well, I need to get back to your younger sister. And I said, well, I know that you do. And she wants you back too, but you need to get back to her whole mm-hmm. sober and strong and ready to push forward. And you can't do that after a couple months of sobriety when you've been addicted for this many years. Right. But she says no. Mm-hmm. She says no. And she says over and over and over again, I'll be fine, Andrea. I can do this. I will be okay. Thank you. I can do this on my own. I'm ready. I'm ready. I'm ready. And all the while, I knew I knew that she wasn't mm-hmm. because that light, that light was missing. Mm-hmm. And so I take her to the airport and I put her on the plane and I... I'm scared to death at this. This is a low for me. I am struggling so much. I've totally withdrawn myself from the savior because I am like, I'm just in survival mode. And isn't that crazy how you do that sometimes Mm -hmm. when you're in survival mode, when the very thing that's going to help you the most, which is reaching for the savior and reaching for God, you withdraw from like, it doesn't make sense to me. I don't know why we do that. I think sometimes we feel compelled to, um, try to control a situation. Oh, and that's exactly what was do you happening know what I mean? here. It's exactly what You're was like, happening. God, here. I got this. Yeah, I can do this, I right? I'm this. confident, <laughs> I'm strong, you've given me the tools that I need, right? Hello, no. So so I go and right as I'm about to send her off through the security gate, mm-hmm. 
I get this prompting, I, I literally hear the Spirit speak to me and say, this is the last time. And I know in that moment that this is the last time that I'm going to talk to my mom free of the drugs, that I'm going to talk to the real, the real Debbie. And so I look at her and I put her face between my hands and I tell her, mom, I love you. And thank you for loving me all of these years. Thank you for making me feel like I was the greatest daughter in the whole world because she did that. That never left her. My mother was always professing her love for us. And then I just said to her, you're enough. You've always been enough for me and you've always been enough for the Lord. Mm-hmm. And then I hugged her and I let her go. And that was, that was the last time I ever talked to her sober. Wow. And um, that was when I hit my spiritual low. I remember going home that night. I remember the drive home from the airport. I was alone and I remember I was screaming at Heavenly Father and saying, what more do you want from me? I have done everything that I can. I have shown unconditional love. I have tried to put her in detox centers. I've tried to be her rehab center. I have done everything that you have asked for me. All I want is my mom back. That's all I want. Mm -hmm. This is a righteous desire. Why can't I have this? And I left it at that because I was being so stubborn and I wouldn't listen. I wasn't ready. (laughs) You had to get it out. I had to get it out, right? (laughs) I wasn't ready for the answer. But slowly, slowly but surely, the answer came that um, it needed to be her that it needed to be her that wanted it and that I could not be the one to control her recovery and that it was only my job to show her love. Right. That was it. And that was literally the most painful realization of my life because, <laughs> oh my gosh, yes. because go get her Andrea fixes things. Right? right. Right. I have always been that type of person that when I decided I wanted something, I went out and I got it. I made it happen with my blood, sweat and tears. Right. Yeah. And this was the one thing that I couldn't figure out how to fix. I couldn't figure out how to make this happen. And I felt so defeated. Mm-hmm. I felt so discouraged and so alone. And I really had to dig deep and search for the Lord. It was a lot of prayer. It was fasting. It was uh, reading more about the Savior, diving deep into the scriptures and learning of him. And just over time, I came to realize that, yeah, it's not me. It's not me that has to fix this. Yeah. It's... It's the Savior. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's this quote by um, a leader of our church. His name is Richard G. Scott. And it says, do not attempt to override agency. The Lord himself would not do that. Forced obedience yields no blessings. Wow. That was an aha moment for me, right? Mm-hmm. Agency, that freedom to choose is a gift from God, right? It's Mm -hmm. the very foundation of his plan Mm -hmm. because without that freedom to choose, we don't make progress. 
we're stagnant. Yeah, that's right. Very true. Yeah. We don't become who our Father in Heaven wants us to be if we don't get to choose. Right? Mm-hmm. There's there's no growth and there's no learning when decisions are made for you. Yeah. No. True. And that that is so applicable in everything that we do, particularly parenthood, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> when our children are making those decisions that we know are going to lead them off the path or just pull them away from real lasting joy, the first thing that we want to do is stop them ourselves and make the choice for them. Mm-hmm. Like surely, I thought, surely if I could just get my mom sober, then she will choose this herself. But the reason why it never worked for my mom. The reason why she was never able to recover from the substance abuse is because she never chose it for herself. And if you talk to any addict who's in recovery, Mm -hmm. that's what they will tell you. It wasn't until they made the decision to heal and to recover themselves that it started happening. Wow. But that's true. And I think, I think, it speaks to the importance of making that decision. Oh, yeah, it does. Own. It is. It's critical. The growth won't happen. The change won't happen. The healing won't happen unless we choose it for ourselves. Yeah. I mean, like Elder Scott says, the Lord himself would not take away that agency. Mm-hmm. Oh, so why on earth was I trying to do it? <laughs> I thought I was helping. Really because I wanted it really, really bad. <laughs> It's just, it's just not how it works. Oh my it's gosh. It's just not how it works. So that, those are some really hard, but really important lessons to learn. And they're life lessons that can apply to anyone. Absolutely. You know, yeah. You have to let people make their choices, suffer the consequences, even though it might be hard and painful. And I guess give it to God. Yeah. It's, it's really really what it comes down to it's too heavy to carry on your own it right? is it is that's why we have a savior yeah thank because you. those burdens were too heavy right <laughs> oh my goodness these are fantastic insights how do you feel you were able to break that cycle of addiction right. in your own family okay because you you didn't you had examples of love but not examples of of healthy, yeah, yeah, healthy, <laughs> healthy <parents. laughs> behavior. Yeah, um, how to deal with with mental health issues in a constructive way. Uh, yeah. yeah. Um. So I feel like for me, uh, breaking the cycle started with realizing that I was a daughter of God. Mm-hmm. I think first and foremost, I had to realize that I was worth taking care of myself. Uh, I think that the example that I had for my parents was if it's hard, numb it. (laughs) Right. Yes. And that wasn't their intention. That wasn't their intention. And they were always trying to teach me to be strong and telling me that I was capable. They were very, very good at that. And yet it was a do as I say, not as I do Mm. type of, uh, type of parenting. Right. In fact, I remember them saying that to me. Really? <laughs> oh, on numerous occasions, oh on numerous goodness. occasions. Uh, but it, it really wasn't until I figured out that I was a daughter of God mm-hmm. and that I, and just for that reason alone, just due to my inherent worth that I could overcome 
that I could do more than I ever thought possible. And so that belief and that belief really, those seeds of believing in my, uh, in my worth were really planted when I first decided to accept God in my life. So at Mm -hmm. 16 Mm -hmm. and during those early or those later teen years, um, I really started to feel that confidence, that confidence that comes from being his and just feeling worth it. And so I think that was the first step, right? That was definitely the first step. Um, also learning to not be a victim. Talk to me about that. What does that mean? So I think so often, and we'll start here with this broad idea, but so many of us who go through hard times don't get out of the hard times or recover from the hard times because we're playing victim. Mm. We feel like if we go around wearing our victimhood, like a scarlet letter, Mm -hmm. if you will, so that everyone can see our stuff, right? This is what I've been through. This is why my life is hard. Mm -hmm. Well, that's great and all, but what do you got after that? Right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) I spent, I spent some years as a teenager doing just that. And I had this epiphany one day while I was attending church. So there is a popular hymn Mm -hmm. in my church called families can be together forever. Mm -hmm. And I swear to you that every Sunday when I attended sacrament meeting, that was the song that played. (laughs) At least it felt like it, right? It sure did. I'm pretty sure it was. I'm pretty sure it was. And I remember walking in, to the chapel and sitting down and I had probably been a member of my church at this point for a few months Mm -hmm. and the opening hymn came on and it was, can you guess? Families can be together. Families can be together forever. (laughs) And I hated the song. I hated the song so much because I was a victim because every time I heard the lyrics to that song, I thought about what I didn't have. Mm. I thought about how my family wasn't a forever family. I thought about how my dad was an addict and my parents were divorced and I had this broken home and how hard it was living Mm -hmm. there. That's what that song was for me mm-hmm. because my focus was on what I didn't have. Oh, and I just remember seething and thinking, really heavenly father, is this the song I have to listen to again? Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden about partway through the second verse, I have this epiphany, this revelation, this prompting. Mm-hmm. And I hear the words can be in the song. Families can be together forever through heavenly father's plan. And it was like, the light switch was flipped and my whole world was illuminated. And suddenly I realized, whoa, I can have a forever family. Mm-hmm. My family can be together. This doesn't have to be about my current circumstances. This can be about what I want for my future. Mm. And so in that moment, my focus changed. My focus was in the wrong place before. So your focus changed from being in the past. Yeah. to looking forward with a hundred percent. And it altered my life from that moment on every decision that I made after that, I would challenge it up against my ideal that I had for the future. And I would think is what I'm about to do going to get me the forever family that I want, or will this keep me trapped in my current circumstances? And that's how I broke the cycle. Wow. I 
looked toward the future. I believed in my divine worth as a daughter of God enough to know that I was worth that forever family. Mm-hmm. I was worth obtaining all that the Father hath for us, right? Because he wanted it for me. And if he wanted it for me, then surely he had given me all the tools that I needed to achieve that. Right. So challenging the victimhood, stepping outside of the victimhood. And I thought after that, why am I wandering around wearing like a dollar store t-shirt with a V for victim stamped on it when I could be glamming it up in a shirt from Target, right? <laughs> like, I don't have to be the victim anymore. I get to decide. That power of choice is tremendous. Right. But it has to come from desire and then a place of action. And then we're, then we become, we become so much more than we ever thought possible. Absolutely. So that's how you do it. That's how, that's how you break the cycle. That is awesome though. And I love that, that your focus shifted from thinking back to thinking forward. I think there's power in thinking forward and, and and having God help you imagine a future. Yes, right. And create a future right. that is different from your past. Yes. Right? A hundred percent. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's awesome. And I think sometimes when you play victim too, you you don't think that uh, you're worthy of those big dreams and aspirations. Like, well, that that's not for me. You know, mm-hmm. that grand life that big family motherhood, you know, before this, I never wanted to be a mother. Mm-hmm. I, I was a terrible babysitter. I hated babysitting. I wasn't good <laughs> with little kids, but more than that, <laughs> it came from this deep place of thinking, well, if this is what family is again, I was thinking of my current, my family situation at the time, I'm not bringing children into this world. Right. Although I loved my parents and I loved my siblings this was not the legacy I was going to leave. This is what family was. I wanted no part of it. Mm -hmm. But after that day, that revelation, Mm -hmm. that epiphany, Mm -hmm. I knew, wait a minute, this could look different for me. And I started entertaining the idea of maybe someday becoming a mother. Don't you think God plants um, these little seeds Mm -hmm. of ideas in our brain yes sometimes when when he feels we're open to it yes and you have to be in that place it's got to be the right place and then he lets and then if we nurture that little seed in our mind it grows and and it changes us completely yeah don't you think it does and it's profound Mm -hmm. it's profound yeah when we start to step into what the father intends for us yeah yeah and you're oh. strengthened. Yeah. You you feel him so much closer when you are who he knows you can be. Yeah, absolutely. That's fantastic. So do you have a favorite Bible verse that's become meaningful to you through all these years of addiction and breaking that cycle? Yes. Yes. Okay. So my favorite is in Jeremiah chapter 17 and it's verses seven and eight. It says, blessed is the man that trusteth in the Lord and whose hope the Lord is for he shall be as a tree planted by the waters and that spreadeth out her roots by the river and shall not see when heat cometh, but her leaf shall be green. 
Wow, that's beautiful. Isn't it amazing, right? Tell me, tell me why this verse became meaningful to you and what it means to you. Well, I just feel like it's proof that the Lord will fortify us when we trust in Him and align ourselves with Him, that we've really all been touched by the heat of our trials. Yeah. But that verse tells me that my soul has not been burned despite it all. Mm that we're never too far gone. And I have refused to be defined by the flames. Wow. Instead, my focus is on the leaf and my focus is on the possibility for growth. Oh, that's powerful. I love that. Thank you for sharing that. Are there any other quotes that have become meaningful to you through the years that have given you um, hope or something to shoot for? Absolutely. Um, One of my favorites is by uh, the current leader of my church, Mm -hmm. uh, President Russell M. Nelson. Mm -hmm. And he says, the joy that we feel has little to do with the circumstances of our lives and everything to do with the focus of our lives. Ooh, that's powerful. Right? So it just always reminds me, Andrea, where is your focus? Mm -hmm. And where your focus is, is where your emotions will be, right? Is my focus on joy? Is my focus on the pain? Mm. Which which pocket would I rather sit in, right? Our focus has got to be on the joy that we want and less on uh, difficult circumstances. Again, it's that looking toward the future. Uh, I just find that when when I look toward what might be, what the Lord wants for me, and I keep my focus there, that's when I'm happiest. You know, the grief, uh, the grief can be overwhelming at times. Yeah, the grief feels like it will swallow me whole if I dwell on the past too much. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You say you want to focus on the joy. What would you say to those who are in so much pain that they have a hard time focusing on joy? Um, I would say the first thing is to realize that you are more than your trials. Mm. You are more than your circumstances. Mm -hmm. I really believe that the Lord did not send us here to be trapped in the challenge. Right. And I feel like if you can, if you can push through the hard time, then certainly you can make it through the recovery. Right. Mm -hmm. Sometimes when we're supposed to be in that recovery process, we're still really sad. We're still um, we're still stuck in the heaviness of the situation. And I think that again, it's about our focus. You have to ask yourself, do I want to stay here in this pain? Do I want to stay in this trial? Do I want this trial to be who I am for the rest of my life? Do I want it to define me every single day or Do I want this trial to be just a part of my journey? Mm. But do I want that joy that I want to have to be who I am? Interesting. And I'm telling you, time and time again, you will choose the joy. Yeah. 
Do you think then that the the message to those who are struggling and have a hard time picturing the joy would be to focus on the Savior? Oh, yes, 100%. Because he is the greatest illustration of going through the hard time Mm -hmm. and overcoming. Yeah. And and I think the benefit of, of that focusing on the Savior is that when that burden is too heavy, yeah. He'll help you bear. Because it will be. It it will be. It Period. Will be. End of story. That is why we have a savior. That is why our loving Father in heaven has given us a savior, right? Yeah. Because he's the perfect empathizer, because he has been through it all. Oh, that's another thing. My gosh, remembering that you are not alone in your yeah. trials. Yeah. Huge, right? Right? Yeah. Sometimes you feel like you're the only one in the world dealing with this, but the reality is that you're not. Yeah. You're not. Well, and I think, I think the adversary also wants us to feel like we're alone. Oh, and so when we're down, of course he kicks us and nobody understands what you're feeling. Right. And we isolate ourselves. Yes, we We do. We isolate ourselves. We do. When in reality, God always understands. I know. And if there's one thing I've learned from sharing my story and journey over these last few months Mm -hmm. is that. I am clearly not alone. I have received message after message, phone calls from people who have said, I have been through this. I have a brother or a mother or a wife or a friend who is addicted to opioids. Mm -hmm. The epidemic is there. It's Mm -hmm. real. Mm -hmm. And there are so many other challenges alike, Uh, other addiction problems, pornography addiction, Mm -hmm. um, alcohol Uh, the list just goes on and on and on. But regardless of your circumstance, I promise you that you're not alone. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the savior is trying to tell us every single day from the people that are around us, but we've got to look up. We have to start being an active member of society, right? That's another tool that I think Satan uses against us during our hard times. Mm -hmm. The adversary wants you to feel alone. And so in, in, to achieve that, he isolates us. Yeah, He isolates us and he keeps us from being around the people that we love or being in our community. Mm-hmm. And we can draw so much strength from our shared experiences. We can. Yeah. We have to look up. We have to reach out. We yeah. have to be involved. It will heal you. Just like when I said I was trying to find myself, right? Mm-hmm. And I ask the Lord, well, how do I find myself? How do I find me? Well, will you serve? You, you participate. Mm-hmm. You become this active member in the community. Yeah. Well, that's awesome. I love that. So um, tell me really quick before we wrap it up here, how does your mom's story end? Yeah. So this, uh, this has been the hardest part mm-hmm. to deal with. Uh, losing her for so many years was agonizing. Uh, I feel like I've been grieving her for more than 15 years, mm-hmm. but it, it ends with her succumbing to her addiction. It ends in, uh, so in June of 2018, mm-hmm. I get a phone call at four o'clock in the morning from my youngest sister that my mother has passed away. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I, the mind can do funny things mm-hmm. when you are in shock. Mm-hmm. I was in complete denial. I remember going from being completely hysterical 
in tears to saying to her, I don't believe it. It's not true. Have you seen her body? What, what happened? I, mm-hmm. I just was trying to rationalize that somehow, some way my mom was mm-hmm. still alive. Uh, I've never been so out of control mm-hmm. in all of my life. I remember it was four o'clock in the morning. So I was in bed with my husband when I got the call. And, um, I remember sitting up out of bed and just sobbing hysterically. And I remember, I remember hitting my husband. Mm -hmm. I was just beside myself and I just kept thinking, she can't lose. This is not how this battle was supposed to end. Right. This is not what I pictured. Right. Mm -hmm. The, those years before when I finally submitted to the will of the Lord and said, okay, I will set boundaries. I will not try to control her anymore. Mm -hmm. I realize she has to choose to heal for herself. Mm -hmm. I will do what you're asking me to do. I developed peace at that time. Right. Mm -hmm. But in the back of my mind, I kept thinking she's going to beat it, right? She's going to beat (laughs) this, right? I held on to that hope and it's okay to hold on to that hope. Don't ever let go of that hope. Uh So I hold on to this hope and I paint this picture in my mind that at some point mom's going to come forward and say, I want to be clean and sober. I need help. Mm -hmm. And then I was going to step in and we were going to work through it together, right? The whole family was going to help save her. This was not the outcome that I pictured. And I remember jumping in my car and I'm going like a hundred miles an hour down the freeway, trying to get to the house that she was living in at the time. Mm -hmm. So the last time I had spoken to her, um, or I had seen her in person, she was so far gone that we had to leave the restaurant because she was being disruptive. And, um, that was really difficult. And so at that point I had just, I spoke to my mom every few days on the phone. Mm -hmm. Again, I had to set these boundaries to maintain a healthy life for myself because addiction will take you, the addiction of a loved one will completely take you over Mm -hmm. from the time. The last time that I saw her was in February and she died in June Mm -hmm. because she had gotten so bad and it was so toxic that I had to just keep our interactions to uh, telephone calls. Mm-hmm. And they looked something like, hi, mom, how are you? And I love you. I just want you to know I'm thinking about you and I love you so much. And if there's anything I can do for you, you let me know. Mm-hmm. And sometimes if I got brave, if you want help, you know, I am here for you. You just have to ask me. Mm-hmm. You have to ask me for the help, but I love you. Mm-hmm. And that's how our final conversation went. And, um, so I arrive at the house and there's police tape everywhere. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I have to wait for hours before they'll let me into the house. Um, that was agony. Yeah. I uh, my, my sister who's 18 months younger and I were just there and beside ourselves. And I don't think I let me myself accept the fact that she was gone until the detective invited us in and, um, had us identify her body. That must've been awful. And that, that moment, um, that moment was one of the hardest things I've ever been through in my life, if, if not the hardest, just seeing her there lifeless and talk about feeling defeated. I talked about how I felt defeated before when I couldn't 
cure her myself, this was like a final, final defeat. And I had a very difficult time after this. And guess what I did again? I stepped away from the Lord. I stopped praying. In the moments and weeks after her death, Heavenly Father was reaching out to me. He was there through the meals that were brought into my home and the the gifts and the notes and the flowers and the amazing, remarkable people that stepped up to the plate and just encircled my family, my siblings, everyone in, in, in their love. Right. And I knew that the Lord was still there. I never felt alone. I knew he was there, but I was so afraid to pray. I think because I knew that the moment, the moment I really got down on my knees and I gave it my real effort, that it was, I was going to have to bear my whole soul and just let it all out and really deal with those feelings. And when I finally did that, It was, it began with a, why, why did it have to end this way? Again, it was, I did everything you asked me to do. This time I stepped away. I decided I was going to let her change, choose it for herself. I set boundaries. I showed unconditional love, Mm -hmm. but this is not, this is not how this was supposed to end. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, if you're a Harry Potter fan, Mm -hmm. You invest all your time in those seven books, right? (laughs) And Harry goes through some really difficult times. Uh And Voldemort is like, he's really starting to win the battle, right? Uh But you know, you know the whole time you're reading it, (laughs) that in the end, Harry's going to win that fight. Uh And that's what I thought was going to happen for my mom. And then all of a sudden it was like, but wait a minute, she, she didn't defeat Lord Voldemort. Yeah. This isn't how it ended. And I just yeah. remember not understanding. And I thought, she's gone. And I have lost her. Mm-hmm. And the Lord, the Lord said, this isn't the end of her journey. And that's when I started to feel at peace. Because I knew and I believe that my mom is in the spirit world on the other side right now. And she's working on her. Yeah. And even though the story didn't end the way I wanted it to end, Mm -hmm. the reality is the battle wasn't lost. Mm -hmm. I'm here now talking to you, raising awareness about addiction, about finding hope, about reaching to the savior during this hard time. And guess what? That was part of my mom's journey. Yeah. As painful as it's been for the rest of us to lose her. Mm-hmm. I believe, I believe that from the other side, she's making a difference. Yeah, she's strengthening me. And I will tell you in those moments when I've shared this story in a fireside or even in this format, I can feel her. That's I can awesome. feel her. And I know that that's a tender mercy for my heavenly father. And he's saying, you guys didn't lose. <laughs> Yeah. You can still fight this battle. And so the hope is, and, and I think this is something we have to keep in perspective with any illness or with any yes, battle yes. we face here in mortality, that the end of this life is not the end. Absolutely. You know, there's more after death. Yeah. And if we were just to take this life and look at it and say, Everything is unfair in this life. Well, that's because we're only in act two of a three act play. Everything gets (laughs) resolved in act three. So all those wrongs will be righted in act three. But right now we're going to have some things that 
we're going to go, what the heck? This is not the happiest no, I signed not, up for. Exactly. <laughs> That's exactly how it is. So in reality, I know. we're really only on book four <laughs> of, Harry, of Potter the Harry Potter series. For yes. your mom's story. <laughs> you're, you're totally right. You are totally right. You know, and that act three won't be grand and amazing if we don't go through the hard times. Yeah. If we don't go through those dark moments, yeah. because we don't learn to recognize the light. Yeah. Yeah. If, if we don't, if we don't trudge through. I love that. Oh my goodness. Well, this has been fantastic. So as far as references go, I do want to reference, um, a support guide. Yeah. Please uh, that, okay. So my church has this amazing addiction recovery program and it's very similar to the, uh, traditional Alcoholics Anonymous program. That's right. 12 steps. The program, the only difference is, is that it's a Christian based 12 step program mm-hmm. and it is phenomenal. If you or someone you love is dealing with addiction, please check it out. Okay. Uh, we'll be sure to, yeah, we'll put it in the show. Notes. Great. Great. I'll have you put it in the show notes so that they can find that link, but they produce a manual for addicts. And then they also produce a support guide manual for spouses or, um, loved ones. Oh, that's fantastic. Of an addict. And yeah. it is phenomenal. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it, it really helped me to heal and deal with all of this after the fact. So that can be found at addictionrecovery.lds.org. Okay. And Perfect. there are stories and just a number of tools. Um, there are so many great places on social media too to find resources to deal with addiction as well. So if you go even on Facebook mm-hmm. and you type in addiction recovery in the search bar, mm-hmm. it's going to pull up resources in your area. Oh, fantastic. So, so go there. Now, you also mentioned a, a New York Times article that had some powerful statistics and I think might be a good thing to reference here in the references. Yes, yes. Okay, so there was an article in December of 2018 featured in the New York Times, and that would be something I would encourage you to look at if you'd like to understand the opioid epidemic a little bit better. Yeah. But I would like to just pull one uh, statistic from Absolutely. that because I think it's eye-opening. And I think that it helps us to realize that this epidemic isn't just something that's happening to the stereotypical junkie on the street, if you will. This is happening in our homes, Mm -hmm. in our communities. This is happening to our youth. Um, The article says, the opioid epidemic is devastating America Overdoses have passed car crashes and gun violence to become the leading cause of death for Americans under 55. The epidemic has killed more people than the HIV crisis at the peak of the disease, and its death toll exceeds those of the wars in Vietnam and Iraq combined. Funerals for young people have become common. Every 11 minutes, another life is lost. Wow. That's crazy. That is really, really crazy. Yeah, yeah, I don't think we realize how bad this really is unless you are personally rubbing shoulders with someone. And then you probably feel really alone like you did when you found out about your mom. I did. I felt so alone in that moment. But again, I am realizing now that I've decided to follow these promptings and starting to and started sharing my experience Mm -hmm. that there are so many people who are dealing with it. And if you're dealing with this, 
the shame can be so overwhelming. And there are so many people who are just kind of at that beginning, the beginning stages of the opioid addiction, Mm -hmm. but the shame of what they've been doing keeps them from seeking help. Mm -hmm. And I will say this, Mm -hmm. I promise you that as a loved one of an addict, I would rather have heard my mom come to me and admit what she is doing Mm -hmm. to have been able to help her find the resources and have her gone, right? I promise you that your loved ones would rather you you come to them (laughs) than have you gone. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, very true. The death is final, right? Yeah. The shame is is temporary. temporary. (laughs) (laughs) How do people reach out and contact you if they just feel like they they need to talk to you? Absolutely. Um, You, I'm on social media, so you can find me on Facebook. Mm -hmm. My page is called Andrea Jean Sorensen. And you can also find me on Instagram at Andrea Jean Sorensen. And Sorensen is spelled with an E-N- and not an O-N Very at the good. end of my name. So if you just, if you look that up on Facebook or Instagram, you're going to find my page. Awesome. Well, I will definitely reference those in the show notes so people can find you a little easier. Well, Andrea, this has been awesome. I'm so thankful that you've been able to share your story. And I, I really you. feel that this message will make a difference in the lives of those who hear it. So thank you for being willing thank to share Thank you so it. much. Thank you. Hey, thanks so much for listening to today's show. I know that there are many of you out there that are going through a hard time, and I hope you found things that have been useful today as you listen to the podcast. If you would like to access the show notes from today's podcast, visit my website. It is storiesofhopepodcast.com. That is where you'll find favorite quotes from today's episode and shareable memes. And those are fun because you can share them with your friends on social media. You will also find the links mentioned throughout today's episode so you don't have to remember what those were. And also all the tips that were shared. Sometimes tips are shared so much throughout an episode you forget. What were those great things? So go to the show notes, storiesofhopepodcast.com to look up these fantastic resources. You know, if someone kept coming to mind during today's episode, Perhaps that means that you should share this with them. Maybe there was a story shared or a tip that they really, really need to hear. So go ahead and share this episode with them. May God bless you, especially if you are struggling with hope to carry on and with the strength to keep going when things get tough. Remember to walk with Christ and he will help bear that burden Above all else, remember, God loves you.